Welcome back to Journal Spotting. Are you trying to keep up with the medical literature? But it's another COVID Christmas, and you can't wait to unwrap your stocking filled with lateral flows, rotor gaps, and cancelled leave. Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back, listeners, to another awesome roundup. We are back with an episode packed with the latest medical literature, which you've probably missed while you've been sat at home worrying about either A, a highly infectious new COVID variant, B, global warming and the end of humanity, C, what to get your mother-in-law for Secret Santa, or D, whether you did or didn't attend a Christmas party last year. Needless to say, you'd be forgiven if that copy of the BMJ has remained unopened. I'm joined, as always, by Respiratory Registrar, Cough Crusader, and number one BTS fan, that's both the band and the Lung Society, Dr. Barnaby Hirons. Barney, good to see you. Thank you very much, my star co-host, Jonathan Hudson. Um, Yeah, it's good to be back on the podcast and good to be back on a roundup. And very nice to be accompanied by (laughs) my friend and co-host, John, who... um, yeah, we missed you over the last few mu- well, few weeks or months. We haven't done an episode for a while. Um, how have you been, mate? Yeah, very well, Barney. Good to be back. I've had a few uh, sort of quiet months, successfully got married to a fellow podcaster at a wedding that didn't turn out to be a new super spreader event. And now I'm working as a cardiology registrar, so aka the Troponin hotline. Uh, how are you, Barney? Uh, are you feeling Christmassy? I feel like you're a Christmassy kind of guy. Oh, mate, um, I'm getting there. Actually, I think... Having children, I'm sorry, I always go on about my children, but having children does make Christmas a bit different. I've always been a bar, a bit of a bar humbug, and I, I, I still have some really quite strict rules about Christmas, like I don't want to hear Christmas songs before the 1st of December. And every year I hear Christmas songs before the beginning of December, before the 1st of December, and now my kids have picked up on that and they, they play them for months beforehand. But hey, never mind. <laughs> I wouldn't share, you share those details with the millions of listeners now as well so an easy way to wind up barney also barney i have been to your living room recently and you're definitely christmassy there's a lot there's a lot of christmas stuff going on there isn't there (laughs) um john mate what uh what are we going to be covering in this episode yeah so i mean there's a lot to choose from um we're going to be looking at the latest evidence for opioids that might be causing harm uh, whether ACE or ARBs in hypertension are the way to go. Uh, which disease have SGLT2 inhibitors now conquered? Um, is IV iron doing more harm than good? These are lots of quite good uh, general medical topics. And oh my God, not another vitamin D study in COVID. Barney, I cannot believe you slipped that in there. Yes, indeed, listeners, you lucky things. But it's all incredibly relevant and um, incredibly important. I actually think we're covering some really awesome stuff today. So listeners, you're in luck. As always, though... There is this uh, needy plea with puppy dog eyes to listeners. Please hit subscribe, leave loads of stars on Apple and share us with all your buddies. Journal Spotting actually makes an excellent stocking filler for all your family's WhatsApp groups. Excellent. Barney, let's crack on. You've spotted something on liver transplants that you wanted to share. We haven't really talked about much hepatology in the past. What have you got? So I'm going to relive some of my nostalgic compatibility days. By that, I mean my four months stint or six, four months stint back in foundation years in 2009 and I'm gonna look at this really quite important paper which came out a couple of months ago um, so I think we've all dealt with these these patients who have come in with liver failure um, but and we may have been chatting to the liver transplant team and things and we've got this 
backlash saying, no, we're not going to take them until they've not been drinking for six months. So most of the time I've heard, I've never heard of it being done shorter, they've uh, needed six months absence before they would even consider a liver transplant. This study in JAMA looks at exactly this concept and it's called Evaluation of Early versus Standard Liver Transplant for Alcohol-Associated Liver Disease. They basically looked at 163 liver transplant patients in a retrospective cohort study. So of these 163, 54% went underwent early liver transplant. That's um, liver transplant within 180 days of quitting alcohol. And 46% underwent standard liver transplant where they had been abstinent for more than 180 days. Overall, their demographics looked pretty similar, although the early intervention group was slightly younger. Okay, so this is challenging the paradigm currently that we have to wait longer before we can give uh, someone with alcoholic liver disease a transplant. Is that the the broad idea? Okay, absolutely, absolutely. Interesting. So what did they, yeah, what did the two groups show? Was Was there a difference between whether you had it early after quitting alcohol or late? Well, John, the point was, actually, there was no significant difference between patient survival, allograft survival, or relapse-free survival. Okay, I guess the key thing here is that they've not randomised the patients, right? So they've looked retrospectively. That would probably be our main concern for the study. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's a retrospective look at these patients. So they weren't selected for the study, um, and, and that is really important. I'm so what this study shows is that people who may have been drinking well beyond, well beyond six months before um, they have a liver transplant, and they didn't seem to have a significant difference. However, we can't necessarily say that um, everybody who drinks right up to liver transplant will have the same amount of survival and same, you know, same sort of consequences. But what it does say is that those who have been more recently drinking shouldn't be excluded, and they need to look at other criteria and pick out the right patients and select them appropriately. And ideally, a prospective study would probably help out with this. The other issue, of course, is that you need to, you know, just in general, we need to ration the amount of livers, which we have somehow. And at least having a clear cutoff with respect to alcohol was fairly easy to use and actually pretty generally accepted. But this study may just show that we need to change the paradigm and we need to change our practice. Hmm. That's interesting. So maybe an, an initial retrospective analysis to allow for future future research. Um, I have got a study now about a very commonly prescribed drug. Uh, I spotted it in JAMA, and it's all about tramadol, uh, which is common, but it's not a drug that I see often on drug charts in hospitals, Barney. Do you? I think a few years ago, we used to use it quite a lot. There was this big hype about tramadol that it... Um, it perhaps wasn't so addictive. It didn't cause such constipationary effects. Um, and as time has gone on, I've seen it used less and less and less in hospital um, because we've seen patients with complications. I've, I've seen patients with hallucinations and all that sort of thing from tramadol. Um, and it's, so it's certainly not a benign drug and we know it's quite addictive. So I'd be interested to see what uh, what the study shows, John. Yeah. So um, in terms of how common it is in the UK, I did a bit of digging and there's a really good website called um, openprescribing.net, which is run by uh, Ben Goldacre both kind of psychiatrist, data guru, and also the author of that book that everyone read before their medical interviews. So um, this website that he's created with his group brings together prescribing data for all, from all the CCGs around the UK. 
And actually, I looked at September 2021, and there were more prescriptions for tramadol dispensed in GP practices than codeine, um, which kind of surprised me. But I think the even more surprising thing is, despite its widespread use, there's not actually a lot in the literature about the sign of serious adverse events with tramadol. There actually isn't much evidence about its harms. Interesting. So I'm hoping that this uh, this JAMA paper is going to come to the rescue and uh, enlighten us. What do you think? Yeah, so authors uh, Z et al. conducted a large retrospective cohort study to try and assess the serious adverse events of tramadol, and they compared it to codeine in the outpatient setting. It's interesting, they used codeine as the comparator, as the indications for codeine are likely to be similar to tramadol, and that could reduce any confounding by the indication for the drug. So they took a database of all patients in Catalonia and Spain and looked at patients with a new prescription of tramadol or codeine who were opioid naive. This gave them 1 million patients, 300,000 with tramadol and 800,000 with codeine. The mean age of the study group was about 50, and the most common indication was for back pain, neck pain and osteoarthritis. During a one-year follow-up, patients with a tramadol prescription were two times more likely to die in the one-year follow-up, and 15% more likely to have a cardiovascular event, and 50% more likely to have a fracture. There was no difference, however, between tramadol and codeine for the risk of falls, delirium, constipation, opioid abuse dependence, or sleep disorders. Okay, John, so that's a big cohort, 1 million, that's, that's pretty impressive, and there's a, looks like a quite a significant increase with tramadol. Um, but our listeners, you can't get much past them, John. I mean, they've heard a lot about cohort studies and observational studies. And they'll be thinking, well, what about the confounders? Like, you know, they'll be shouting that down the, you know, their headphones. Um, you know, surely there might be other factors going on. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's worth mentioning these. It's clear that there's going to be lots of confounding in the retrospective design. But there are some things that we won't ever really be able to answer with a randomized control trial. These drugs are pretty well established and no one is going to really front up the money for a big RCT and it would have to be a really big randomised trial to detect outcomes which have a relatively low incidence. So if you're looking for like really severe harms like mortality after you've had a tramadol prescription, you're going to need a huge cohort and there's just no way you're going to be able to do a randomised trial. This is quite a good example of somewhere where an observational trial or an observational analysis is, is suitable. And the authors, to be fair, did everything they could to reduce confounding. They did something called propensity matching, which is a kind of complicated way of balancing your confoundings. Uh, they adjusted for loads of confounders like socioeconomic status, ethnicity, all that kind of thing. And they did quite a few sensitivity analyses to kind of check their results. I'd really encourage anyone who's interested to read the trial and the accompanying editorial as it's a great explanation of all these different methods used for adjusting for confounding. But basically, I think this is a you know, quite well done retrospective cohort study that gives a very strong signal that tramadol is probably not as safe as something like codeine. Um, and uh, that's kind of what you described, Barney, about previously we felt like it was maybe a bit safer than codeine and had a bit less side effects and there was less opioid, you know, dependence and stuff. I, in terms of severe adverse events, it's definitely, well, not definitely, but it seems worse than codeine. I think that's, that's it. That statistic there, that it's two times more likely to die within one year. Of course, yeah, that could be from a number of factors, but we know there's things like serotonin syndrome. I think it can affect the QT. There's lots of potential reasons why it could be more serious. And actually, you know, that could fit with the theory. So great. Thanks, John. Thanks for taking us through that. All right, John, cardio nerd. Here's a little question for you. Here, I'm going to test you out. You've got a Caucasian, hypertensive. He's 50 years old and you want to start him on some treatment. There are no secondary issues or any other causes that you can find. What are you going to give them? 
uh, a bollocking about eating junk food and not exercising until nice. I come back in a few months. Nice. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. I mean an ACE inhibitor, obviously. Obviously, ACE inhibitor. That's what good. tells us to do. Exactly right. Exactly. And it's kind of ingrained in our thoughts, isn't it? You, know, you start with an ACE inhibitor, um, and then when they develop a troublesome cough uh, um, as a buildup of bradykinin, which causes an increased sensitivity to non-noxious agents, which you breathe in, by the way, um, we switch them to an ARB. We have, or I have at least, been told that ARBs are just as good as ACE inhibitors. So why not start with them if they don't have the same side effects? Uh, and that's what this study is going to look at. It was published in Hypertension Journal um, and it covered some 2.3 million Americans via central databases. They wanted to know if there was any difference in efficacy and safety of these two drugs. Primary effectiveness outcomes were ACS, stroke, hospitalization for heart failure, or a composite of these three, plus sudden cardiac death. There were 51 different secondary endpoints looking for presence of known adverse effects of either of these drugs. So, first thing to realise is that there was no difference in any of the primary endpoints. So can I just check, Barney? Is this looking at uh, whether ACEs versus ARBs, are they, are to look if they're just as effective at blood pressure reduction or whether they are effective at ACS stroke and hospitalisation from heart failure? Is that the question? It was the secondary prevention um, side of things which they were looking at. So those sorts of um, hard outcomes rather than sort of the blood pressure measurements down the line. Uh, okay, nice. Okay. Yeah, cool. Okay, so no difference in primary endpoints, you said. So ARBs as good as ACE inhibitors or non-inferior to ACE inhibitors at preventing acute cardiovascular disease. Yeah, it seems so from this data. Unsurprisingly, bradykinin-induced cough and angioedema were significantly higher in the ACE inhibitor group. That's not a surprise. But what did come as a bit of a surprise, so um, perhaps I wasn't expecting, maybe I'm being naive, was were significantly higher rates of pancreatitis, which is a known rare side effect of ACE inhibitor, GI bleeding, which apparently has been you know, seen in some you know, case studies and things like that, and abnormal weight loss. ARBs were associated with more, a slightly higher rate of weight gain. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, is, is ACE inhibitor in Get Smashed? Is it the A? It's not, is it? No, it's not. No, no. There are, I'm sure there's medications, or is it iatrogenic? Or the, I can't remember. Oh, but I'm it's not, sure. not in there. No, no. The other, the other thing to point out is like angioedema is not harmless complication, right? That is not a light cough. Like angioedema is a life threatening, can be a life threatening emergency sometimes. Yeah, if you get up a railway. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And it causes hospitalisation. It's pretty scary. It's a pretty horrendous thing. So interesting. So there's quite a few things there. And and GI bleeding, you know, again, it's not a a common risk factor, but it seems to be a risk factor you get with ACE inhibitors, but not ARBs. So is this going to change your practice, Barney? Well, the ARBs did just as well and did much less harm than the ACE inhibitors when given for hypertension. So personally, I mean, in my practice, the most common times I prescribe an ACE is um, after an MI or in heart failure. And this study doesn't, unfortunately, necessarily change that. However, if I was going to start something for hypertension and it was meant to be an ACE or an ARB, actually, yes, this would swing me towards using an ARB first line. John, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the harm profile of ACE inhibitors compared to ARBs make it make that conclusion 
I think, very sensible. I think the ACE inhibitors have been cheaper traditionally, which may be driving some of the use. And also, I think maybe the original trials that were done in terms of cardiovascular prevention or secondary prevention were done with ACE inhibitors. So this sort of the pendulum has swung in their direction. But, but yeah, I, I can't see many arguments for not suggesting ARBs could be first line. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, really interesting um, paradigm shifting study. <laughs> We've shifting your paradigm listeners. This is amazing stuff. Okay, brilliant. Okay. And uh, going on the cardiology theme, John, what have you got for us? Yeah, if it's okay with you, Barney, I'll continue us trying to um, turn this into a cardiology podcast. I'm going to talk uh, about what is probably to some people the top cardiology story of 2021. Um, it's not to do with coffee. It's the first positive trial in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Okay, John, do you want to clarify for myself and the listeners exactly what HEFPEF is? Otherwise, other than sounding like a some sort of abbreviation for us, some sort of Hogwarts house. Yeah, uh, so most papers about the diagnosis of HEFPEF and indeed the um, like European Society and American Heart Association kind of joint statements start with a comment in their papers along the lines of making a firm diagnosis of HEFPEF remains a challenge. So, you know, you're not alone in being a bit confused about what it actually is. But patients with HEFPEF have clinical signs of heart failure with normal or near normal left ventricular function on an echo, but they have some evidence of cardiac dysfunction that could be a cause of their symptoms, which is kind of indicated by a host of other features on the echo that isn't just the ejection fraction. We don't know the pathophysiology of HEFPEF exactly, but it probably involves some impairment of ventricular relaxation, compliance, increased stiffening of the ventricle. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the broad idea. It used to be called diastolic dysfunction. It's not really called that anymore. It's worth keeping in mind that although it's a little bit wishy-washy, it is a big deal. It's half of all patients with heart failure globally have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Really? Is it that high? Is it um, 50% of all heart failures... Um are HEFPEF and therefore don't have, well, effective treatments. That's uh, that's higher than I realised. Interesting. Yeah, well, no effective treatments until now, Barney. Uh, this is the Emperor Preserved trial. It's a large, randomised, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial of about 6,000 patients with HEFPEF and with an ejection fraction of over 40% to be in the trial. It tested the efficacy of the SGLT2 inhibitor in pagliflozin at 10 milligrams compared to placebo in HEFPEF. The population studied had an average age of 72, half of them were women, and 50% had diabetes and 50% had an EGFR of less than 60%, so probably sort of an appropriate risk factor profile or comorbidity profile. At just over two years of follow-up, the composite primary outcome of CV death or um, cardiovascular or heart failure hospitalization occurred in 13.8% in the empagliflozin group and 17.1% in the placebo group giving a 21% reduction that was a statistically significant at a p-value of 0.003. Now, the primary outcome was mostly driven by a 29% reduction in hospitalizations with heart failure, which was significant, but not by cardiovascular death, which was only reduced by 90%, and that was not significant between the two groups. Okay, so it reduced the heart failure symptoms, but didn't necessarily reduce the rate of death, although there's possibly a trend for it. Um, interesting, and it, sound, well, it sounds promising. It sounds more promising than anything we've had so far in, in HEFPEF. So what do you think, John? Is this something which we're going to be prescribing for oh, yeah, all our customers with this or dishing it out like Smarties? What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's really encouraging, um, but there are a few 
drawbacks that I think make some people a bit skeptical. The drug's really quite expensive. And the trial only really shows, as you said, that it's effective at reducing admissions and not really at preventing cardiovascular mortality, which is, you know, what cardiologists wake up in the morning for. Um, it's definitely a positive step in the management of HEFPEF, but maybe the hype about this big trial is, I don't know, a little bit overblown. I've seen a few commentators say that it's basically an expensive diuretic, uh, just because, you know, that's interesting. That's the effect it has. You know, a lot of people, well, I think there's still some controversy over what gestures two inhibitors actually do in terms of their cardioprotective effects. And one of them is actually they are diuretics and maybe that's what's driving reduced hospitalizations rather than anything else. So I'm not sure. Watch this space. I, I have a feeling. I think it is. I think it's going to be very beneficial. I think that's interesting that some people still think it's related to diuresis. And I think that they, um, they have a lot more actions, which we don't probably understand. Um, and endothelial function and things I, I yeah there's there's i think they've got quite a lot going on which but hey i'm not an expert and i'm not a cardiology doctor so um <laughs> i'll leave it to them it may, may surprise you but what you are barney is a respiratory physician so tell us about steroids and copd oh there we go this is what everyone wants to hear they don't want to hear about these cutting edge therapies and hef pef they want to hear about steroids and copd um all right, listeners. I'll I'll take you through the take you through this next one. Uh, we've we've all seen that COPD patient who's come in multiple times, multiple exacerbations, and given multiple courses of the same dose of steroid. A sense of doubt might uh, start to creep in. Surely this can't be right. Their sugars are up. They're getting immunosuppressed. They've now got osteoporosis. Um, Maybe they go a little bit batshit crazy when they give them too many steroids. And you have this vague, distant memory of promising to first do no harm. And you're wondering whether that's what you're doing. Okay, so what we know, we, we know steroids in COPD exacerbations work. They reduce hospital stay overall, they improve lung function and oxygenation, and they do reduce the risk of relapse. But do all COPD patients really benefit? Are we even giving the right dose? I mean, it's amazing. There's very little good evidence about what dose to give in COPD or asthma. Although in the UK, in COPD, we tend to opt opt for 30 milligrams prednisolone once a day. But these are the days of personalised medicine. And a one-size-fits-all dosing surely isn't the best option. CHEST released this prospective multi-centre randomised open-label clinical trial. 248 patients in China split into usual care with a fixed dose of steroid, which was, in this case, 40 milligrams of prednisolone or equivalents, or a personalised steroid dosing. I've got two questions, Barney. The first one is, so it doesn't matter if on the take I forget the asthma dose or the steroid dose and I end up giving 40 to someone with COPD. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, interesting that we stick to 30 and then most, a lot of other countries, actually, they either give 40 and sometimes they give whacking great doses in other countries like China, actually. They were saying that often the average dose which was given to patients was somewhere between 60 and 100 a day. So, so John, you might get struck up by a GMC, but no, it probably doesn't make too much of a difference. My second question is how do you personalise someone with COPD's uh, steroids? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, and the author did go into it, although they had a whole appendix of explaining the rationale for the different choices. But essentially, they had a uh, scoring system that included 
type and severity of the exacerbation, inflammatory markers, um, and that included eosinophils, blood gases, and weight. And the amount of steroid they used in these patients ranged from zero milligrams in patients who had a really low score to up to 200 milligrams in a day. On average, patients received about 61 milligrams a day in the personalized group and actually 56 milligrams in the fixed dose group. And I had to look this up because it wasn't actually clear, but the reason that was higher in the fixed dose group, higher than 40, was that um, many of these had relapses. And then on their relapse, they may have had a higher dose of steroid, um, which pushed up their average. Oh, the, I was chuckling away at the 200 milligrams a day of um, prednisolone. It's crazy. I was thinking like, if your sugars aren't high at 40, like, can't imagine what they're like at 200. I mean, that's, that's a whopping great dose, isn't it? And especially if you're giving it for five days, which is what they you know, they were aiming to give unless they failed treatment. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. So as far as primary endpoints, that was treatment failure. So that was both in hospital and sort of early to medium time post-discharge. Secondary endpoints were essentially treatment costs and admission length. So, you know, not too complicated. Now, going to the key results, failure of therapy occurred in 28% of the personalised dose group compared to 49% in the fixed dose. The relative risk of failure was 0.4. Adverse events, interestingly, and length of stay and costs were all similar. So even those who were getting whacking great dose of steroids, overall didn't seem to have much more complications and side effects than those who were having the fixed dose. Interestingly, in the personalised group, those who received a lower dose of steroids, i.e. 40 milligrams or less, had an average failure rate of 44% compared to 23% when they received more than 40 milligrams, especially if they received more than 60 milligrams. And there did, again, there did not seem to be a higher rate of complications with a higher dose. So steroids actually seem to work and they seem to work at even higher doses. I mean, it doesn't sound like that it's the personalized algorithm that's doing it. It sounds like it's whether or not you had over 60 milligrams of steroids that's doing it. Yeah, exactly. I think it, it, you're right. Well, basically, firstly, yes, in this cohort, you know, steroids work and the higher dose of steroids seems to work. Yeah. Um, and but you're absolutely right. That was my conclusion about this, this scoring system which they used. And I can't really see the scoring system that they use really kicking off um, in England, for instance. Uh, you know, I think the idea of a scoring system is actually a very good idea because I think, you know, we should be doing personalised medicine and um, anything to aid personalised steroid dosing should be good. But remember, even with this personalised dosing, those who received a lower dose based on a lower score actually had high failure rates. So this scoring regime appears to need some tweaking, to say the least. There were other aspects of the study which raised a little bit of an eyebrow, such as those who had a lower eosinophil count appeared to benefit more with the steroids than those with a higher count. And this is something which we know from multiple studies just, just isn't true. But the sample size, so the authors argued, the sample size wasn't big enough really to account for this, for these individual subgroup analyses. So watch out, listeners. It may be that a higher dose works better in COPD and, and we may just have to accept the ongoing steroid risk to our patients. But... At the moment, let's stick to the guidelines. 200 milligrams a day. 200 milligrams days. a day. You've heard it first on journal spotting. Don't worry Barney about it. Barney told me to give 200 milligrams. 
200 milligrams of prednisolone and 100 uh, units of uh, insulin you're sorted this is good. a good moment to say listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast where we say that nothing yeah. we say should be taken as clinical advice <laughs> moving swiftly on Brilliant. before we get in trouble intravenous iron has gone from strength to strength no longer do patients have to spend their days wondering whether they've had melina while they're on iron tablets they can just grab a quick top-up of the brown stuff IV iron is now endorsed by guidelines for its use in CKD, heart failure, and IBD, just to name a few. But sadly, it does come with its downsides. Oh, John, you're always you're so negative. Anyway, it's nearly Christmas. Come on, cheer up. <laughs> what, are, what, are the, what are the downsides? Well, I'm sure you know this, Barney, but a recognised side effect of IV iron is that it increases the risk of infection. When our bodies get invaded by pathogens, our body or the inflammatory process actually withholds free iron from the um, pathogens or from the invaders. So if you then give IV iron, you're basically feeding the pathogen exactly what it needs to grow. Yeah, I think this is really interesting because this is something which um, has been around for a little while. And then not long ago, I was trying to figure out what to do for patients. I wanted to give them IV iron. They weren't tolerating oral iron. They had a bit of an infection. So I found out um, hematology. And he was like, Oh, I didn't really see a problem with giving the IV iron. And I was like, but doesn't it cause infections? He's like, well, you know, there isn't actually any good evidence. Um, so I'm kind of interested to see what, what this study shows. Not sure who you were speaking to about this. Uh- <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it was quite inter- it's quite an interesting conversation. I was like, you, you probably sound like a brand new haematology registrar, but still, Cause, carry on. Because just to refute that, this is a meta-analysis of 154 randomised trials. <laughs> so shut et al. from Oxford, uh, published in JAMA Open Network, a study, well, this meta-analysis of 32,000 participants to bring together all the data. I mean, anyone that's done... There weren't many patients, basically. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The text is actually impossible to read because of the sheer number of citations after each sentence. So it'll say, like, some (laughs) some studies, you know, had this feature, and then it'll be like, study number 23, 24, 25, there it is, you get the point. They showed basically that across the trials, IV iron increased the risk of infection by 17% compared with oral or no iron. And they classified this as moderate certainty of evidence. So as you can imagine, across 154 trials, there was quite a lot of variability regarding how infections, the primary outcome, were actually reported. Yeah, interesting, John. Okay, so a big risk of infections. um, And... What are we going to take home from this? I mean, do we just not give IV iron to people with infections or do we not give IV iron in hospital to reduce the risk of infections? How does it work? Yeah, I wouldn't describe it as a big risk. I mean, there is a risk. Uh, I guess guess it seems like quite a good timing to reinforce the message that infection is a complication of IV iron, especially given, you know, there's a highly transmissible respiratory virus floating around. You don't know which one of your patients might have it. It seems sensible to just keep in mind that giving someone intravenous iron may, you know, precipitate an infection or exacerbate an infection because you're creating an an environment in which a pathogen is more likely to be successful. Um, So, yeah, I I don't know. IV iron, obviously, it has its place 100%, um, but it's just, I think this meta-analysis is just a good reminder of um, being sensible about its prescription. I think I need to give that haematology registrar a call back. (laughs) (laughs) It was a strange conversation. It was a strange conversation. Okay, John, going from giving iron to reduce infections to what else can reduce this pesky virus going down. And, I mean... You know, just as we're speaking, 
Boris is uh, making some announcements about, I don't know, Christmas parties and that sort of thing. And Omicron is just starting its ugly mutant spread around the globe. And I, for one, am looking forward to hearing about this incessantly over the next few months. So instead of looking at Omicron and instead of talking about Boris, I'm going to focus on another, a few other important things about COVID you may have missed. Firstly, as we said at the beginning, I am going to revisit vitamin D. So this um, article was published in Nutrients Journal, and this was a systematic review of population and clinical studies investigating the correlation between vitamin D levels and COVID outcomes. Cut straight to the chase. Overall, there was a significant correlation between COVID mortality and vitamin D levels. So the lower the vitamin D level, the worse your outcomes from COVID were. And so part of the study, they did a meta-analysis of two studies of hospitalised patients, and they found on these patients, the median vitamin D level was within normal range. So for these figures, 23 nanograms per milliliter. But what's really interesting was that if they did their regression analysis and extrapolated a little bit, they came up with this conclusion that suggested a a theoretical point of zero mortality at approximately 15 nanograms per mil of vitamin D. You're not expecting us to buy this, Barney? As in, if your (laughs) vitamin D is 50, you won't die of COVID. Is that the conclusion we're meant to draw here? What What they were saying is that at a vitamin D level, vitamin D3 of 50, there could be no excess mortality. And there are a few patients which obviously had high vitamin D levels, but a lot of it is extrapolating this regression analysis, which, you know, is not by any means the best sort of way of making decisions on these things. But again, begs the question, and it does seem to fit that the higher vitamin D levels, the better outcomes you have. I mean, really importantly, as we've already mentioned, correlation does not mean causality. We all know this. But based on the wealth of studies and attempts at confounding, the the authors argue strongly for a causal role of low vitamin D affecting the immune system and therefore COVID outcomes. For me, this study just bolsters the, the idea that we probably should be taking vitamin D supplementation and having an aim where theoretically we could greatly reduce excess mortality with a simple and cheap treatment should strongly be considered. And I do think we should probably be advising our patients to do the same, not necessarily get their vitamin D levels up to 50, but taking supplementation during this pandemic. Yeah, that seems sensible. Probably avoid that sort of messaging towards anti-vaxxers. Yeah, yeah. don't worry about it. Don't get your vaccine. Just take some vitamin D tablets. <laughs> um, the authors, you can see that they were trying to word it as carefully as they could to, to avoid this idea that you don't need to have a vaccine, you just need to take vitamin D. But uh, an interesting idea. And I've got one more study, COVID study, um, which is kind of along the same vein. So I won't go into too much detail, but it was published in GUT and it was called Diet Quality and Risk of Severity of COVID-19, a Prospective Cohort Study. So this was This was a prospective study, and the premise for this was that we know things like diabetes and obesity negatively impact on COVID outcomes. But how much of that is actually due to the diet rather than the sequelae of a poor diet? So is it just because is it because of the fact they've got diabetes, or is it because actually they're eating the wrong foods? Six hundred thousand participants in the UK and America filled in diet questionnaires before a eight-month observational period. 
things like regular eating of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains gave them the highest you know, score yeah, as far as their diets. Those who scored highest had a 9% lower risk of developing COVID-19 and a whopping 41% lower risk of developing severe COVID-19 compared to patients in the lowest quartile. This was, when they looked at confounders and they looked at other factors, this was even worse for those living in areas of low socioeconomic status. Um, so, you know, that, they had to take that into account. Now, of course, it's really impossible to completely pick apart interlinking factors such as obesity, um, anything else. This data complements a huge amount of lifestyle medicine evidence that eating well, particularly a plant-based diet, can have huge benefits to health in general and protection from infections and COVID is just one of them. Uh, perhaps they were just eating a bit more vitamin D, Barney. Is that, is that possible? All had levels oh, of 50. Maybe, maybe they were, maybe all these people were out in the sunshine just eating vitamin D. Um, I mean, like, look, it's very possible, but I think vitamin D is part of the picture, but perhaps not the whole picture. And um, yeah, these plant-based diets could really be protective. Cool. Okay. So uh, before we wrap things up and go back to scoffing mince pies, I just wanted to share a research letter that was in JAMA um, in November, uh, published by Ellison Barnes and colleagues. Um, Now, lots of people will probably say their best years were early adulthood from the age of like 18 to 25. You know, you've unshackled yourself from your parents. You've still got hair. The world is at your feet. And crucially, you're probably in your physical prime. At least that's what sort of biology would tell us. This makes this data from the USA all the more worrying. Um, They looked at trends in obesity prevalence among adults aged 18 to 25 years from 1976 to 2018. This makes this data from the USA all the more worrying. They looked at trends in obesity prevalence among adults aged 18 to 25 years from 1976 to 2018. Now, they showed that the prevalence of obesity has skyrocketed to 33% during that time period. So from 1976 to 2018, we've, had, uh, we've gone from 6% prevalence of obesity to 33% in the United States. That is, and that's obesity, right? This is not overweight. This is BMI over 30. Yeah, that's shocking. Yeah. This now means that roughly one in three Americans between the age of 18 and 25 are o- obese with a BMI greater than 30. And that's pretty sobering stuff. And I think it spells very bad news for the future health and healthcare of that population. Here in the UK, we've got 13% of 16 to 24 year olds that are obese. And if we know anything about obesity trends, it's where the USA goes, the UK does seem to follow. Um, now back to those mince pies, Barney. Delicious. No, but it's interesting, isn't it? It's shocking. And I think, um, I think lifestyle medicine, nutrition, all of these things play a part. Things like COVID have really sort of hit home about the 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 risks and dangers of you know, eating poorly and the sort of effects and everything. So, um, so it is interesting and it is sobering. And that is a that is a huge, huge number of people mm. who are grossly overweight and will ha- be having a lot of risk with it. So. Brilliant. Thank you, John. Thanks for all of that. There's loads of interesting information, loads of great stuff, which has been coming out of the last few months. Um, we've covered liver transplants, tramadol, hypertension treatment, heart failure treatment, CP steroids, IV iron, COVID and obesity. Awesome. John, what are, what are your key take homes from that list? Uh... Oh, I mean, it's tempting to just pluck vitamin D out again, isn't it? But I'm not going to. Um... I actually think a risk of picking one of my own. Uh, I think the tramadol paper, um, I sort of didn't really appreciate how harmful tramadol 
actually was in terms of adverse events. And I probably, A, won't prescribe it in the future and B, will think about it if I see it on a drug chart. Yeah, no, that's a good call. Um, what about the problem you? is the alternatives, alternatives such as codeine is, I think it's, it's around a third of people um, don't metabolize it properly, so they don't get any pain relief from it. So, you know, mm-hmm. there's no there's no winner with these, with these medications. Um, we have to try, basically try and figure out which works. Um, I love the, you know, the, the trial on Hefpef and the Flozins, and I love the story of the Flozins, and I want to believe that they are a miracle drug, despite what these naysayers say. Um, is it going to change my practice? Well, probably not in the moment, because it's very much one of these things that's just going to be <coughs> guided by the guidelines. So something which might change my practice might be the ACE inhibitors versus the ARB. Specifically, actually, if I get a hypertensive patient which comes through the door, they need, and I want to start a treatment, I think I would go for an ARB over ACE inhibitor based on the uh, the study I've I, I read. So, yeah. Lovely. Good stuff. Well, Barney, fantastic. It's good to be back. And, uh, yeah, enjoy chatting through the latest medical literature with you. John, have a fantastic Christmas. Love to the family. And uh, Merry Christmas to all our Journal Junkie listeners. We'll be back before you know it with more fascinating facts and practice-changing paradigms to um, so listen out. Happy holidays. You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Information and animations from today's show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. This podcast has been generously supported by St George's Hospital and Health Education England. Special thanks to logo designer Natalia Florman and promotion team Abby and Isabel. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.